Heavy Networking by the Packet Pushers is sponsored today by IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers for over 65 hours of IT training for free. That's itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. This episode is sponsored in part by Thousand Eyes. Thousand Eyes gives you visibility, insights, and actionable intelligence into user experience from every user to every application over any network. So you transform your WAN, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experiences in the cloud and on-premises. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers and snag a fun t-shirt. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. Welcome to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking, the show where networking gets a little bit heavy and tries to get into the detail faster than most people sort of think about that there's detail there to happen. Today is a casual discussion about where networking is headed. In particular, the topic that I wanted to cover was the idea of SDN Federation. Now, what I mean by that is as I peer into the future, what I'm seeing is that companies are going to have or, or anybody who's operating a sufficiently sized infrastructure they're going to be in a position where they're going to have a number of software applications, a number of SDNs. You might have one orchestrating your hardware. You might have one orchestrating your software-defined network. You'll have another one operating some security infrastructure. You'll have another one doing your identity. You might have one for your campus. You might have one for your SD-WAN. And the challenge is going to be is how do we federate those? And what do I mean by federating? Well, federation as a government model is like how do the states of a country like Australia has seven states, how do they coordinate together to act as one system as Australia? And there's a federal model of government where all of them devolve some responsibility to a master who then sets the privileges for which each of the sub-states or each of the states in the federation can achieve and can want. And yet nobody so far seems to be talking about this idea because it's pretty clear to me that this is where we're headed, that that everybody's going to have these SD-WAN controllers and they've all got their software applications and they all want to sell them to you and there's open source and there's closed source and there's, you know, all these different models. But the question is, how do we jam them all together into one potential vision of the future? Now, I'm not the right person to know all about this, but what I have invited onto the show is Rob Sherwood. Rob, welcome to the show. Much appreciated. Always happy to join. Yeah. And you've been, you and I have been talking on and off since 2011, I think. Uh, when you, yeah, definitely. We're back in the early days of OpenFlow and software-defined networking when we were trying to convince people that, you know, software operations of the network was a big idea, like it was just a new idea and people would be just never, you, you could take the CLI out of my cold, dead hand sort of discussion. Uh, good, good times. Always fun to, to wax philosophic. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've had several years of working at an SDN startup, obviously at Big Switch over the years, and you've now gone to work for a mega cloud provider, and you're a software developer, very much a software developer. You've done operating systems on switches, you've done the controllers, you've done the applications at a very big level, and you're now doing it at a huge scale over at Facebook. And we don't really want to talk about Facebook so much, but what I want to talk to you about is this idea of how do you bring all of the SDN apps together into one consistent whole, but particularly from an enterprise IT point of view. Are you up for that? If I said no, what would we go from there? Yeah, <laughs> well, let's do it. We, we wouldn't have much of a discussion. So, so the principle that I laid down was this idea that your typical enterprise is going to have a data center, an SD-WAN, a campus, and the vendors are currently trying to sell you a solution for each one of those. Can you unify those? Do you want to, Are they too different to be unified, do you think? No, and so I, I split the problem up a bunch of different ways. So I think from a technical side, the answer is, in my mind, a fairly clear, yes, they can be unified. Yes, you probably want them unified. Um, 
And, and I think there's real values for doing that. Now, if you look at the non-technical bits, like um, if you look at the large companies, and there's a bunch of companies that will run, you know, maybe a separate branch office team, a branch office network from their data center network, and maybe they have some WAN stuff, maybe they have, you know, other parts of their network. Um, and typically what happens is these are all different teams. And so trying to get all of your teams to coordinate onto one thing is a super hard non-technical problem, both from like an internal politics and internal, um, mm. you know, who's right standpoint, but also, you know, because of that, you know, what you're taking is, you know, just getting SDN into one data center or into one uh, SDN WAN solution for one company is a hard problem for, uh, like, for a vendor. Yeah. And so if you're saying, all right, well, I'm going to take that one problem and compound it by, I'm going to come up with a technical solution that can solve everything for everyone, um, and then I'm going to try to sell it to three different org- three different groups in the same organization, and you know more than triple my sales cycle time. Basically, you're taking what in my mind is the hardest problem, which is mm. adoption, and making it worse. So what you're saying, so if I consider what you're saying, Cisco today, for example, has one SDN platform for the da- well has a couple of SDN platforms for the data center, and it has the SD Campus strategy, which is emerging with it. it. Only has one, has two, one for wireless and then one for unified. Uh, we have SD-WAN, where they've converged around the VIP teleproduct. And the reason that they're three separate products is because that's the only way they could reasonably sell them in a short period of time. Because if they wanted to sell you a universal solution, you know, a general solution for all SDN, companies just wouldn't be able to make a decision in less than a decade sort of thing. So obviously I can't talk for Cisco, but no. I, I can't imagine anything from that being different from the truth. You know, yeah. Meaning, uh, you know, if you asked me to, if you think about like the the comp- the part of the company that runs the campus wireless network, like those mm-hmm. are completely different people with different things that they care about and different problems than the part of the company that runs the data center. Now, if you could provide a single unified look and feel, uh, single backend data, single IP allocation scheme, you know, all, all sorts of things that you could have out of a hypothetical single master SDN solution, I think it would benefit a lot of people. Mm. But I really think that, you know, and in a lot of ways, you know, you said the, the right thing for the title of this, what is the future for SDN? I think that such a thing is in the future, but it's solving a problem that people don't yet have. Like right now, people are trying to figure out how to keep up with the number of boxes that they do have. And I feel like one SDN driven network for one part of their network helps solve that problem. And then five years from now, maybe 10 years from now, when you have you know, exactly as you're saying, you know, one SDN controller for this part of your network, one SDN controller for the next part of your network, then how do you get them to talk and interoperate uh, and work off of the, the same piece of music? Like, that's, I think, a problem for some time from now, but I think it's a big problem that we need to start talking about now. Mm. I guess if I look at it from a technology point of view, are these networks so different that you couldn't unify them? So if I'm thinking like, if you have an SDN function that's managing your AWS. And then you've got an SDN function, which is managing your wireless for a branch network. Are they so different that you couldn't unify them? Is there a fundamental technology gap there where you couldn't model the two together in a unified function? They would have to be different because the use cases are so different that the interfaces would be different or the, you know, the whole logic would be different. Let me give you two answers, which I guess makes me an engineer and not a salesperson. Um, Like, 
if you talk to these teams, there's actually a, and, and I've done, you know, as you know, I've spent a, a lot of my life wandering the world and talking to networking people, doing all sorts of things. You spend there's, a lot of time in a plane. <laughs> yes. Um, there's this fundamental knowledge gap between the two teams. So, you know, if you talk to uh, wireless WAN people, uh, wireless LAN people, you know, they want to talk about 802.1x. They want to talk about, um, I'm not a, a wireless LAN, like they want to talk about OSPF uh, scaling and things like yes. that. And there's a whole bunch of things that they care about. Yeah, but really wireless relies very heavily activity. on Ethernet over Ethernet overlays, yeah. right? They don't do Ethernet over IP for some, because they do Ethernet over Ethernet. And CapWAP, you know, God help them, right? Yeah. But like... <laughs> The equivalence of all of those things exist in all parts of the network, but they just are called different things and work in an implementation layer that are different. But the idea is that they actually, my claim is that the implementation doesn't matter, right? You know, whether you're using CapWAP or VXLAN, you know, so VXLAN is much more data center side, CapWAP is much more wireless side. They're both tunneling protocols to solve the same thing. There's access controls in the data center, there's access controls in wireless LAN. So you know, what you're saying there is the end of the day is a VLAN is a VLAN is a VLAN is a subnet is a subnet is a subnet. An ACL is an ACL. A, a, an overlay is an overlay. Whatever the encapsulation or the technology is, it always redacts down to the same functional model. And you know, even you know, when you say a VLAN is a VLAN, that actually, I, I claim, betrays your background because mm. you know, I think of it as a broadcast group which is even a more fundamental primitive. And some of the, the crazier things, crazier products out there say, all right, well, you, know, you think of a VLAN as something that does this. And, you know, if you take a look at, for example, uh, the way uh, Big Cloud Fabric, Big Switch's uh, premier product uh, implements it, you know, the egress router from that is actually always a virtual IP, which is mm-hmm. the thing that breaks some people's brains because it's, that's not how I run VLANs. And you know, even a VLAN is a specific implementation of a broader concept. Yeah. In my defense, that is actually how I think about it, but I'm just using ordinary Absolutely. language. Yeah. I, I actually consider a VLAN as a broadcast group. That's what it is. Yeah. And and an ax, and a, basically a VLAN is a Mac access list in a way. Well, and then, you know, but if you had a, and this is, I think this is the fundamental friction is if you had a conversation with a WAN person who thought of the same thing as VPLS. Mm. You're actually talking about the same thing, but the implementations are slightly different. And my claim is that before you can solve this, how do we do SDN for everything? You have to get people speaking the same language, even if I claim they're speaking about the same things, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, like, you will. I, in a past life, I got into a really deep argument with people uh, because uh, their definition of vir- virtual private network, I was thinking of um, OpenVPN tunneled uh, SSL. And they were thinking of VRF. But we were both talking about virtual private networks. Yeah, one's encrypted, one's unencrypted. But at the end of the day, it's a microsegment. So whether you're using an SSL encapsulation or an MPLS tag, or for that matter, a VLAN tag, each one of those represents a microsegment generally. Well, in, in, in this specific case, you know, they were talking about the service provider access of it. So it's not just that there's an MPLS tag, there's also a virtual routing peering. Uh, and so, you know, there is much more to what they were thinking than than what I was talking about. But you know, we were both using the same terms in completely re- reasonable to our domain ways, but our domains were intersecting and we had problems talking. Yeah. So you're saying that there's a language barrier between the two, but at the end of the day, the technologies remain the same? Exactly. Or at least, you know, the, the use cases and the needs remain the same. Right. And this, there, I, I, my claim, and you know, to your point, we don't have a single product that solves all of these, but I, you know, 
given what I can see, is that there could be a single solution for these things. So I think what you're suggesting there, if I may, and I'll try and read that back to you and restate it a little bit, is at the end of the day, a VLAN or an overlay is a set of destinations that can be privileged and that a VLAN is literally a list of uh, MAC addresses that can reach each other via broadcasts and the the edge router is just a virtual IP that exists in some software function somewhere. So the default gateway uh, onto a VLAN is just a, a an ARP function. Exactly, and, and you can start breaking down different assumptions that we make about the network and re-implementing them in different ways. And net, you know, I, I really do believe that you know uh, early days of SDN, as you remember, because you were there, people dismissed SDN as a data center technology, mm. and then they dismissed it as data center plus Google, right? Because Google was running on this WAN and nobody would do that. Yeah. And then, you know, SD-WAN became a huge thing. Um, and now you're getting SDN on campus, you know, SDN in all sorts of places. And, you know, I, and I, I do believe that, you know, the, the ball is rolling in the direction of having one single way of controlling them. Uh, it just makes sense. Mm. Now, what you haven't mentioned, and I will throw out here just because I think it's the, the thing that people always get concerned about. It's like, well, one single point of control, isn't that a security problem? And what I will tell you is the laptop that you can log into everything in your your network is a single point of control. So that security problem already exists. It's just the interface is crappier. <laughs> well, definitely, right? At some point, there's always a single point of control, whether it's a person or a piece of software. To my mind, it, the threat model and the risk model changes a little bit, but it fundamentally doesn't go away in either version. Whether you're configuring from the CLI and you're relying on a human to carry all the information in their head about the thing. There's plenty of weaknesses in that model operationally and from a security point of view. But if you give it to an app, then certain things get done without you knowing about them happen. So your security model becomes different in terms of protecting the app and making sure the app isn't making false decisions or false implementations. Or much more likely, the app needs to be continually updated as the edge points, as the endpoints adapt or change. So if the version of software in the edge switch goes from this to that, you have to keep updating your SDN controller, otherwise it might be configuring the wrong things. Absolutely. At the same time, though, an entire class of security problems goes away, which is, you know, I had a security policy that I thought I implemented pervasively across my network, but I didn't because, you know, this machine was down at the time or its config was slightly different and my application of the policy failed in the way that I didn't thought. Like, I didn't think it applied the way that it actually did. Mm. There are pros and cons. It's one of those things that I've just heard over and over again and I wanted to get in front of that, you know, if you imagine this, you know, kind of single all-powerful controller, you know, forget the scale for a second because I think that's an easily solvable problem. But like, Mm. People are like, oh, there's a single point of control for, for my network. That's a single point of failure. And you know that's where the hackers want to break in, and thus I'm less secure. And it's like, A, you already have that. Uh, and B, it could, in my mind, be more secure, because now you could actually audit your entire network security policy more accurately. Mm. And you can start doing things like, my SNMP v3 security key is actually rotated on a regular basis, which is not something you could do when you were doing it manually. Exactly. Or let's make sure that it's not possible to log in to a switch with a plain text password. Let's make sure that you know there's some stronger notion of authentication that has to happen. We pause our podcast discussion for a word from IT Pro TV. They are flexible online technical training and are offering a free membership so you can try them out and expand your IT career. Try IT Pro TV out and access 65 plus hours of IT training, including Microsoft and CompTIA courses at no cost and no credit card required. 
Training helps you take advantage of the career paths available in IT. A recent MIT study shows that IT occupations have grown by nearly 20% between 2004 and 2017, and that's more than eight times the growth rate of other career paths. Earnings are growing for folks in IT as well, even though earnings are flat for college grads on the average. IT Pro TV can help you take advantage of these trends with courses covering CompTIA, Cisco, EC Council, VMware, and more. There are over 4,000 hours of binge-worthy, on-demand training presented by engaging hosts that use a talk show-like format. And they are live every day. Content goes studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. You can find exactly what you're looking for easily. You can also stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand worldwide via Chromecast and Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, on your PC or your phone. No matter where you're at, you can learn your stuff, you can pass your exams, you can earn your certs, and then land your next great job with the help of IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers for over 65 hours of IT training for free. That is itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. One more time, itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. We thank them for sponsoring the podcast. And now back to the show. I think the two things that we talked about so far is it's possible to redact networking regardless of its type or its function down to some basic primitives. And really, you have to think about what those primitives would be, MAC address forwarding, IP address forwarding, source destination IP address forwarding, MPLS tag forwarding. The actual process of defining your encapsulations, if you're using an overlay network or you're deciding whether to forward on this or or whatever, actually breaks down into sort of certain basic principles. So in theory, it would be possible to have a universal model for defining a forwarding um, plane, a connectivity plane between the two. So two endpoints, one in the public cloud goes through a data center to reach a campus. You'd be able to create a unified view of that and then either program all of those networks directly by using their universal models. But that it strikes me that that brings us back to where OpenFlow was in 2010, 2012 type era. And people said, but programming flows or that granular level of detail is impossible or impractical. I mean... It was a, a common misunderstanding about OpenFlow that you know the only way to use it was to program flows. Mm. Uh, I mean, it really was about trying to access the little bits of the hardware. You know, I, I really think that as the uh, packet forwarding uh, hardware vendors start to open up their SDKs, you get things like OpenNSL, you get things like SAI. Um, <clears throat> the need for OpenFlow went away because you could actually just bypass what would, have, what would have been the OpenFlow layer and work at that directly. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, no one was ever suggesting using the chips in any other way than that we're designed for. So you program MAC addresses, you can, uh, you can set the bit that learns MAC addresses automatically, you can program routes, you can program ACLs. And, and um, I, I, don't think any, I don't think anything we're talking about necessarily changes the data plane or where packets are forwarded. It's, I think the entire conversation is about the policy that generates the data plane rules. How is that managed? Mm. If that makes sense. I, I just want to insert a practical consideration in saying, yes, I agree with you that everything's a policy. So a MAC address on the campus Ethernet network is a MAC address on a Wi-Fi, is a MAC address in the public cloud somewhere at the end of the day, or an IP address if you want to regard it at that level. Um, the challenge is the complexity of that and making an app that can embrace the concept of forwarding across 
a reasonably diverse set of infrastructure, let's say, you know, whether it's software or hardware or whatever combination, it could be, you know, highly virtualized in on top of somebody else's cloud infrastructure. It could be a WAN network with several layers of recursion underneath, you know, you're never going to know. Is it possible to write an application that complex to handle that many conditions and actually get it to work so that the policy is consistent? Well, let me turn that around. So absolutely, I could buy that it is complex, but is it going to be easier for a program to solve or easier for a team of humans to solve? Mm, And my claim is that it would be much easier for a program to solve, you know, with perfect information, a shared database and, you know, no fat fingering of things. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree. But then your earlier point, of course, was then pointing out that the challenge here from an enterprise point of view and enterprise's desire to buy products from vendors and vendors' desire to earn profits in a reasonable time frame is trying to sell a mega SDN solution that does everything for everybody is not something that people are going to bite off on up front, they're going to want to do it piece by piece. Is your is what you are suggesting? Uh, absolutely, and, and honestly, I think you know, even if you look at some of the most forward leading uh, large enterprises, I still think it will be years out before they even believe that this is a good idea. Mm. Um, but I feel like I've been to that front already, and you know, I, I believe this is a good idea. And, mm. You know, it's just a, an interesting, very forward facing conversation. You know, at least from a product standpoint. Because one of the interesting things that I'm seeing is I'm being approached by companies, startups, who are building what I would consider to be niche SDN applications. So an SDN application just for DCI, for data center interconnect, or an application for internet exchange points. So you can actually go back and um, if you're running an IXP, you can now buy an app, uh, an SDN app that just does that. Or... Uh, another one that I saw recently was um, for colo facilities who want to manage uh, bandwidth, internet bandwidth to customers. There's an SDN controller, a SDN application just for that. Um, if you get a plethora of these niche applications, is that, is that sustainable too? Can we have like small applications handling a variety of niche use cases that can sustain itself? So I absolutely believe the answer is yes, but it's going to require a huge paradigm shift for the average network engineer. So if you had that, if you posed that same question to me, but every time you said SDN app replaced it with web app, that would be just a ridiculous conversation. You know, there's a hundred million mm-hmm. web apps in the world. Is that sustainable? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the web works. You know, that's really important. Um, you know, it makes a lot of companies a lot of different money. Uh, you know, a bunch of money. There's nothing fundamentally different about these different types, uh, you know, a web app versus an SDN app in terms of it being critical infrastructure or the software complexity or whatnot. And in fact, uh, a diversity of applications in this networking ecosystem, in my mind, is the success that we wanted starting back at the Stanford days. Um, Now, there's a very different view from, you know, okay, so let me take off, you know, my software engineering hat and put off my, you know, admittedly a little bit dusty network engineer hat. You, you think of, if you hear that, you think, oh God, that's, you know, another 10x more technologies that I'm going to have to learn. And this is where you know, we were talking about the abstractions. So if there are the right abstractions in the network, it's not 10x different technologies you have to learn. It's the difference between Nginx versus Apache. It was, right. It's not that big a deal. No. But they're not replaceable. One operates one way and one operates another. If you're orchestrating one, you're not necessarily orchestrating the other. So you can't just start saying, 
configure Apache with the same commands that you do for Nginx and vice versa? Well, not the same commands, but you know they both have open interfaces, meaning that you know there's configuration files that you can edit and look at. And if you have to try, like if say you're moving from Apache to to Nginx, um, you can look at the changes you made to your configuration file for Apache and kind of intuit about what they'd need to be to to um, work over to Nginx. And that's you know at a text file problem, like server people have been doing this for years. Like the only reason this has been historically hard with networking is the the application like the configuration files have both been obscure and obtuse and if you type the same command in two commands in different orders they might do different things and so that that gets more to i think as a industry we need to mature a bunch of these tools i actually have no problem with cli like i, I use bash all the time i get lots of things done in bash right hmm. but if you start talking about a network cli you know it's not quite a good CLI, right? Like you can't get a dump of the state of information, right? You can write type show running config, but if you just reapplied that config or tried to revert it or something like that, all sorts of strange things could happen, right? You know, network engineers have had this horrible um, experience for a long time of, I'm going to make a very small change that really shouldn't break things. It does break things. And I go, oh God, oh God, put it, I put it back, I put it back. And yeah. the the act of doing like know that command doesn't put it back. Well, yes, that's the other problem. Right. And so <laughs> and, and that in my mind is just a, a quality of software implementations and has nothing to do with SDN or architecture or anything like that. And the more potential solutions we have in place, the more kind of pressure we can exert on vendors to to avoid those types of things. And I guess the challenge here is that a lot of people don't think about the atomic element underneath. So the difference between Bash and a CLI is that Bash is universal. It operates at a much lower level. It's not, and it's actually, funnily enough, not actually doing very much that's useful in its way. Like Bash has very little business purpose. So while it has universal appeal for managing Linux for any given capability, it doesn't inherently um, configure a network. Or, or or write Microsoft Word documents or chart business graphs. Well, and you know that you could argue is a good design, right? And the the problem that you know a traditional network CLI is a whole bunch of the things that you mentioned. You could argue is a bad design, right? You shouldn't couple a whole bunch of different things of like the input mechanism versus the debugging mechanism versus the visualization mechanism. Like, like that. There's a bunch of things here that are just badly evolved. Um, I, I really think you know uh, you, you know my my background. I'm heavily into open source and you know, open networking and what have you. And I really think the main ultimate benefit of those things will not be cost reduction, but the ability for companies, uh, whether it's uh, end vendors or uh, vendors or end users, to strip out and extract the data that they want in the way that they want, and be able to better manage their networks, which is basically a precondition for being able to go up a level to this kind of master controller that manages everything, mm. if that makes sense. It does. I guess the, the, the question in my mind then is um, how do we get from there to here? So let, I don't think we can answer that because that's just going to be an evolution over time. But I guess the, the standards that we're working on today in terms of APIs and so far Yang models seems to be the most popular, but a lot of people want to use GNMS or gRPC or any one of the many different APIs, are they going to be fit for interoperating between SDN controllers? 
this is where I take a very kind of different and and apologies if it sounds so boxy, but it's a bit uh, you know tried and true at this point. Um, if you go to other software domains, they don't have a need or even a want for standardization at this level. If you look at all of the web APIs that you can access, you know the Google APIs, you know GitHub APIs and whatnot, they change those constantly, and there's no one who's trying to say we have to stop all of the web development until we can come up and decide whether it's you know we're going to encode these things in Yang or REST or you know XML, right? You know there's just a, an excess of these things, and people understand that it's an excess, and it would be great if you could say there's like one solution that solves everything, um, but saying that, okay, there's only four different solutions and, you know, maybe some use XML, some use, um, you know, uh, Yang, some use REST, uh, some use some proprietary text encoding. Um, it's a little bit more work, but at a software level, you can solve that. And I feel like keeping things at a solvable technical level is much better than punting it up to a standards body, which turns it into, in my mind, an unsolved non-technical problem, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're just saying that's a technology problem that doesn't, that'll be solved when the time comes to solve it. Well, and more so, like, I don't think it actually needs to be solved. Like, so if we can have the six, like the pervasive success of the web happen in the network, by which I mean, you know, there are multiple companies that are making a bunch of money. There's innovation that's happening at an incredible rate to the point you can't keep up with it. Mm. Um, like happen in the network. I think that's success. And what I'm saying is, you know, the conversation of let's stop and debate net comp versus, you know, what have you, I think doesn't actually help that. And I don't think it's actually even necessary to, to move this forward. Does that make sense? Well, this is the standards argument. If you wait for a standard or a discussion around standards to emerge, do you end up in a situation where you're actually wasting time instead of getting to the solution? So it might just be easier to say, get it done, just go and do something and then wait and solve the problem when it's actually a problem. And that's definitely one angle of it. But the other angle is once you can access the data, like uh, imagine you have network stack A and that exposes its data through a Yang model and NetConf. And you were like, all right, that's great. Um, But, you know, network vendor B with network stack B has just offered me a great deal. And I'd really like to maybe run a, a dual vendor solution mm. for a while. And, and that exposes it through REST uh, with uh, JSON encoding. And you're like, all right, well, there, there's... So one way you could look at this, and so say I have some sort of OSS, BSS system on top, which does automation that creates some value for my customers. right? And so you could, one solution is you could say, all right, well, I'm screwed. These are different systems. Um, you know, There's no standardization. There's no way for me to move forward. Or you could say, oh, okay, this is a software problem. I can write a translator and have an abstraction layer in my OSS BSS system that knows how to talk to both you know, JSON, REST, as well as uh, NetConf Yang. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, I guess the flip side here is when you're polling APIs, it's inside the app. The chances of the app being able to speak multiple API languages is far greater than the capability of a human to speak multiple CLIs. Well, and even more so, it's it's much faster to have your app developer uh, implement writing to two different APIs than it is for the ITF to come up with a single solution for everything. Yeah, and and that's what I mean by like you know that's a technical problem. Like, hey, Alice, you know who heads my app development team? Um, I know that we wrote this important app for only one you know underlying network API, 
how large time is it going to take to implement a second API? And Alice is going to grumble and say, all right, well, I have to write an abstraction layer, but I didn't think there was an abstraction layer and I'll have to rewrite some code. But, you know, it'll take us four months. And, you know, versus if, you know, you and I had to guess for how long it's going to take to resolve NetConf versus, uh, I don't know, name three other competing standards, like that's an indefinite non-technical process. That's the thing that I mean. Let's pause the podcast for a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, Thousand Eyes. You like it or not, your organization is embracing the cloud, and that might be great for the business, but for network architects and IT ops teams, it can be a service delivery nightmare. Why? Well, you're depending on cloud providers, ISPs, and third-party apps for business-critical services. And even though you don't control those networks, you do own the service delivery, which means if performance is bad, people are going to come looking for you. And this is where Thousand Eyes can help. You can take advantage of Thousand Eyes agents across the cloud, within your enterprise, all the way down to the endpoint. These agents actively monitor network behavior and topologies and how they affect application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can correlate multiple layers of performance data from L2 to L7, including BGP routing and DNS, to quickly identify problem areas and dramatically reduce your mean time to repair. You can pinpoint the root cause of device faults, congestion, Wi-Fi quality, DDoS attacks, and more. And you don't have to keep all this intelligence to yourself. You can easily share events, metrics, and dashboards with your vendors and customers so that you can collaborate to resolve problems faster. Now, Thousand Eyes also aggregates anonymized real-time data from a collective data set so they can generate insights about large-scale issues across the internet, including their severity and breadth, as well as likely root cause. Now, if all that sounds good to you, here's a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. Try Thousand Eyes for free at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. And while you're there, get yourself a free Thousand Eyes t-shirt. That's thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. Manage every network like it's your own. Thousand Eyes. Thrive in a connected world. And now, back to the podcast. Right. So what you're saying, I think what I hear you saying there is that SDN vendors are going to be able to, they're going to build models in their app or they're going to build some sort of abstraction away from the API anyway because they're reasonably going to expect to have multiple APIs to manage southbound. So the ability to add any other APIs is not a substantial event. Exactly. And so Um, in terms of federation, standards or interoperability is less of an issue than it was in a previous era. Say, you know, when we say, for example, with OSPF or BGP, every router in the network had to agree, absolutely, because every router had to speak exactly the same BGP and the same OSPF, and all had to be backwardly compatible. But in an SDN era, when you're talking point-to-point, so SDN controller to device, you can have as many standards as the SDN app can support. There's no reason for every endpoint to speak exactly the same API as long as the outcome is the same. Exactly. And you know, actually, and if you look practically speaking, what happens is a lot of these apps will actually have some sort of fallback mode to speaking BGP to a router as if it were an API. So if you think about, okay, so what does an SDN controller do? Like it, it would populate routes into uh, a routing table. It might query information. Uh, it might try to prescribe policy. Um, you know, it might figure out if the ports are up or down. Like a bunch of those things, if you kind of hack up the BGP protocol, you can announce routes. So that program's a route. You can figure out which links are up based on what's being advertised. You can, using um, you know, some BGP extensions, you can actually specify ACLs. Uh, was that the um, flow spec uh, mm. extensions? And so you can think of BGP as one more API to manage a, a router. That's now, how I think of it. And I mean, that's certainly how Juniper thinks of it. They're still very in love with the um, with BGP and they use it as a data bus. So they don't, 
you know, it's provable that BGP is a viable API for just configuring devices. And part of the joy of EVPN is exactly that, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. But then you get into other things like, all right, well, um, I'm interested in tracking how many microbursts that I have on my switch. And I'd like to get that data off the switch. And the BGP, there's, there's no BGP extension for that. Like, how do I get that information? And so, and you get to, so there's kind of the dimension of the data that I want isn't exposed through BGP yet, even though there's a, a plethora of things exposed through BGP. But then you also get to a dimension of, I'd really actually rather have a programmatic API rather than a protocol API. Because if I'm a software developer, that's kind of how my brain thinks. I want to be able to make a call and understand if that call failed uh, or have a defined, um, these are the parameters that things take, and then this is the expected response. And so I do think, you know, having BGP as a way of wedging SDN into lots of places is a super useful technique. Um, I do think of it a little bit as a, it's a little bit of duct tape and bailing wire. Yeah, BGP was never meant to be an API. We can attempt to use it as such, but the challenge with BGP as an API is you're still stuck with destination routing. It's very difficult exactly. to do source destination or um, I want to do four tuple, five tuple. I want to, you know, how do you put an access list into a device via BGP? And, and I guarantee that there's somebody who's listening to this right now shaking their fist at the the microphone because they know of some spec that BGP that extends BGP that does all the things you just mentioned. But like, come on. Right? Like, it's just... <laughs> yeah, and this, this is why... Uh, and this is part of my point about I have a sort of a generalized rant that uh, BGP is not going to be available for all that long, or not going to be useful. It's always going to be used on the internet, but it's not. But it's only going to be used because changing the internet, changing the federated model that the internet has, and getting everybody on the internet to change to something else isn't going to happen in my lifetime. So yes, BGP is always going to be around and limited, but. Inside of the networks, people are not going to be speaking BGP. They're going to be repl- speaking BGP at the edge, but internally they're going to be using some sort of more direct control of forwarding that's beyond beyond what we have today. And you know, we're seeing instances of that already. And in fact, to, to bring it back to kind of what we're, we're talking about, this SDN Federation, I mean, I actually really believe that BGP is going to be the lingua franca between SDN instances, even inside an enterprise's network. So how does your... SDN in the data center talk to SDN WAN controller box. The answer is some routing protocol, and it's probably BGP. And that that kind of decouple, like it, having things coupled, is bad in a lot of ways. It's bad for security. It's it's harder for deployment. And you know, having BGP as this nice, you know, if you speak BGP and I speak BGP, we can interoperate layer. That's super useful. And you know, I, I totally agree with your point that uh, at least in in our lifetimes, you know, that layer because it's so pervasive now, will continue to exist. But I, I think there'll be kind of bigger and bigger non-BGP clouds mm. where you know BGP is still the inter-cloud yeah. protocol. But, Use, but using a route reflector as a, as a way of configuring a, a forwarding plane in a network is going to have limited value. It might work today, but it's not going to work in the long term. Well, and, and it, de- it depends what, like, I, I have often used the analogy that, you know, uh, a controller managing multiple routers is a route reflector. <laughs> and so, a lot of people are using route reflectors as an API. I configure the route yeah. reflector and then the route reflector will send the data out to the network. So it just becomes an in-network control plane. Yeah, and, and I would call that, you know, poor man's SDN. It, well, to me, it seems so limited because you're not configuring the device. You've still got another uh, set of control planes out there configuring 
terminals configuring uh, SNMP settings, the operating system, the booting, the remote booting, all those types of variables. Well, just getting like so a, a big problem that I see in data centers is environmental monitoring. Like you know, is our cooling doing what we want? Is the cooling working pervasively? You know, are there literal hotspots? You know, either in my racks, in my rows, you know, various places. Um, and you're never going to get that information out of BGP, but that's you know that's bread and butter for what I think is a, a more proper SDN controller. And that's kind of why I call it poor man's SDN, is you know, some of the important use cases are, are not being addressed going that way. But it also, I do think it is an easier transition point from if you have a traditional all BGP network uh, and you have a route reflector, then you know there are enough BGP stacks out there now that you can implement in your own an open source BGP route reflector that takes a different set of policies input as input and eventually get to the point where you're tired of writing text files for that, and then you actually create a pro- programmatic API to your route reflector to then start propagating information out to the rest of your network. And that's what I would call this poor, man SDN, poor man's SDN case. But like I've seen a bunch of places do that just because that's kind of the easiest transition path from what they have. Yeah, yeah, because they, don't, they can still go in and manually hack it, or they understand BGP and the idea of BGP. But I just... I guess the flip side here is that SDN is much more than just the forwarding plane or destination-based oh, routing. absolutely. Right? Yeah. You're not even scratching the surface. You might think you're being incredibly clever by programming, you know, by being able to click a button and adding a BGP route and changing the way that something flows across the network. But you're you're not even remotely approaching what segment routing is doing with source destination and the flexibility that you've got with that. And why are you only routing on destination? Why are you not routing flexibly over source destination? Why are you not saying from this source to that destination, send it this way? And the answer is, of course, it's a complex problem to solve in software, but that's the point of software. It can solve complex problems. Well, and actually, and, and it'll be interesting, you know, I think you and I should meet up in 20 years in an old folks' home somewhere and, and then uh, <laughs> see who's uh, right on this. But I actually think in 20 years from now, we're going to find that the most important benefits of SDN are not about changing how we forward packets, it more about how we debug things how we audit things in general, you know, shortest path routing works pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. Like once, you know, once the routes are programmed and, you know, maybe you get some latency optimizations, maybe you do some better traffic engineering, but how do people actually spend a lot of their time? They spend a lot of time thinking, you know, is this configuration change going to blow up my network? There's been a lot of time trying to prove that the, the last configuration change they did didn't stop the network that, you know, some other thing happened. Um, and I think those are actually the bigger pain points that people are going to want to solve. And I will tell you, you know, and I keep kind of bringing this back to this SDN Federation idea, the, the biggest, most complex problems to debug are the ones that span different teams and different parts of the network. So if you, know, if you have a connectivity problem from a host in data center one to a host in data center two that goes across a WAN, there's a whole bunch of places where that problem could be. And the number of people you have to bring in, because you're probably working across teams, you're probably working across vendors and technologies and whatnot, to figure out where the root problem is, is a super complex problem. Yeah. And that's yeah. where I think SDN will ultimately have its, its biggest glory. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and that's where SDN's really going to con- get its value from. I mean, I think... You're just hung up on the idea that we might be in the same old folk homes together. I mean, it doesn't have to be the case, right? No, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll be we'll be using a teleconference. 
it won't be in the same, <laughs> I suspect, <laughs> if we're still talking to each other in 20 years. And we are, get out the other side. I think that um, the real value from SDN hasn't yet, like uh, the killer use case for SDN hasn't been realized. So far, the SDN we've done in data centers is we're doing better data center networking. We're increasing the operational velocity, but we actually haven't done anything that's innovative other than an overlay network. But even that's not a genuine innovation because we've been heading down that path for a very long period of time. People have wanted MPLS in the data center for 20 years. They couldn't get it. I, I, I'd play the, the William Gibson card here, which is I'd say, you know, uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Uh, there are people doing very interesting, innovative things, you know, just in data center, just with SDN. Um, but it's it's not in every enterprise. It's not in the common vernacular. To have a push button, here are two points in my data center. Show me all the policy that affects the connectivity. Show me there's packet reachability. You know, tell me everything I need to know about why these things are or are not talking. Like that exists today. And, and I think that that is, is really interesting and innovative. And then that's why I say that you know, some of the analysis, some of the auditing, some of the debugging capabilities is probably going to be the most interesting things. Mm. What about orchestration from SDN controllers northbound? So now I've got an SDN controller in the network talking to the devices, so there's a southbound aspect of that. What happens, which is like um, the when I start having apps above the layer, like help desk apps like ServiceNow or orchestration apps like cloud data centers or I've got a DevOps controller like Kubernetes and it wants to start configuring the network underneath. Um, Kubernetes is very complicated in a way because Kubernetes wants to configure the network underneath, but you also want to configure the network in Kubernetes too. So a very bad example there. But if you think about um, what happens when ServiceNow gets to new user coming on the network, click a button and the MAC address gets added to the security profile or you want to click a, create a new VLAN or a new micro segment for something and there's a help desk and they just click it and the micro segmentation is created for that new use case. That exists now. There are commercial shipping products, you know, including from you know, you know, previous companies I used to work for that, that do exactly that. But you know, kind of to the point of SDN Federation, but you know, they're doing it only in the data center. And, and you know, certainly I think the wireless LAN world has had controllers for a really long time and have had functionality like that for a long time. Where, you know, if you look at, if you think of your access points as switches and you would, then you they actually even call it a controller, you'd have a central controller that manages those things. And they actually trunk a lot of the traffic back to the central controller, which is weird. But, you know, you have had the capability to do that type of management for a while in that area. Mm. Uh, the idea that you could do it and the data center is relatively new. The idea that you could do something like that in the WAN where you say, you know, I'd like to have, um, you know, another quality of service class across my entire network button yeah. push. Like I'd like to have uh, an entire VRF uh, complete with peering domains uh, at these points button push. Like mm. I, I think that is not far away. And in fact, there's probably products you know, that I'm not aware of. Like certain from a technology standpoint, that's very easy to get to from where we are. But to my earlier point, there's the, the technology bits, which I think have always been the easy part. And then there's the non-technology bits in terms of adoption, in terms of how do yeah. I convince somebody to try something that is different? That's where things get more complicated, where things slow down. What about network modeling? We've seen a lot of people talk about um, network modeling and then using tools like formal verification to calculate paths through the network. Now, that's emerging as a really powerful tool and uh, the startups like forward networks in that space and, and are 
really getting traction with big complex, like with companies who have big networks, who've got firewalls and IDSs and, you know, all these places where the paths can get confused because of bad routing or poor firewall rule control and stuff like that. Is that something that you're looking into or is that that you think is going to be a big deal or is it just going to be part of an SDN platform in the long run, which is what I think. So um, I, I should qualify, uh, you, you mentioned Forward Networks, um, founded by a bunch of my friends out of Stanford, so take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, okay. I think that, you know, in, in general, modeling the network and getting information out of it and trying to have a, a bigger view is really kind of the baby step, is the practical steps that we can take now towards kind of a, a master centrally controlled network. Mm. You know, for all the reasons that I said, you know, it's super hard to deploy now because you have to get n different teams to agree uh, at the same time. Um, if you look at modeling, if you if you look at the set of things that you can infer without changing the network, right? Like I'm not. If you imagine like getting read only and not access, not uh, enable access on a switch. Yes. Or, yes. Like you know, that gives people a little bit more comfort, and you know, if you can do useful things with that, then. I, I feel like that's the that's the gateway drug to this larger picture that we're talking about. So I, I think certainly there's some interesting things to be done there. Yeah, um, my my view of it was like if you've got a half a dozen SDN platforms in your intervening system, like DCI and wireless and campus and blah blah blah, and you need to validate that this change at least won't break the path, um, or that the cost policy won't drop you into a substandard traffic class. You need network modeling and formal verification products like that in the master controller to be able to calculate that for you because you've got to you, – you, all of those systems have their own way of representing their configuration state and their operations. And you need some abstracted model so that you can say, oh, well, this guy's this, – this SDN platform is going to configure the DCI to do this and this SDN controller is going to configure the Wi-Fi to do that. And the SD and I believe in the end, most companies are going to have two or three SD-WAN solutions. They won't have just one. Well, you said this magic words in the end, which you know I, I feel like that's that there, there's never an end, right? You know, it's not that the, the networks are going to go away um, and things will continue to evolve. I, I do think a lot of like the idea that there's a different controller for the WAN than the D, the data center than you know some some other part of the network. I feel like is a practical limitation about how people want to how organizations are structured and how people want to deploy things, not a technology problem. Yeah. And that it, it does cause problems. Like if you had a, a full SDN controller for every part of your network, you still have, if you have this multi-network debugging problem, you still have like a complex problem to solve. Yeah. And, and I actually think that the introduction of public clouds in the long term, five to 10 years out, is actually going to be more of a hassle than we know. Because in five to 10 years, you're going to have at least two public clouds. You're going to have a private data center because there's stuff there that you can't get rid of. You're going to have um, SD-WANs over internet mostly. And then you're going to have all these campus networks. Like a lot of branches now are getting wireless as well as wired. And you've got this sprawl problem. It's not that it's not that things are getting harder. It's just that things are getting more complex because there's more stuff. And the stuff is all more different, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, like I, I really believe that you know everything in computer science is simple but subtle, meaning that if you start layering more and more things on top of it, then it's harder to intuit about. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I do think that you know in that picture that you're painting, uh, the only way, basically, you hit a point where it is beyond the ken of mere mortals to understand. 
Yeah, well, and I think we're approaching that now. I think part of the problem with SDN is people are realizing that it's no longer the reason the CLI isn't going to be useful going forward is because a network that used to have, I don't know, 30 to 50 routers in it, in the WAN and the campus and the data center, has suddenly somebody deploys NSX and the vSwitch is effectively a router and now you've got 250 routers in the data center plus the 30 physical routers plus all the ones in the WAN and then SD-WAN comes along and all of a sudden you've got micro-segments on top of direct internet access Campuses coming along with overlay networks with micro segmentation. It's not that the reason the CLI isn't going to be useful is not even as much as humans aren't accurate and can't do it at speed. Is it's just not already a problem that you can solve as a person. You need software to do to augment your capabilities because it's not possible to do it alone. Exactly, and you know, it's it, I, I'm very fortunate that I have kind of split my career between being a network engineer and being a software engineer because. In the software world, if you think of when you go to compile a program, like programs are complex, you can have complex, subtle bugs, and people long ago understood that the subtleties and complexities of writing a program are beyond a human's understanding to to solve. And so what do we do? We have compilers, we have linters, we have a bunch of tools to tell us where there are problems. And, And that is just like to eat and breathe and be a software engineer is to understand that you need help figuring out where the bugs are. And mm. network engineering has actually been proportionately simpler, I claim, mm. up until recently. And you know, as we pick up um, you know, different dimensions of complexities, and you mentioned vSwitches, you mentioned cloud, you could have thrown in IoT, uh, mobility, you know, IP address changes, and things like that. As all of these different dimensions add to the complexity, like... It will quickly, and in, you know, depending on what kind of environment you're in, you may actually believe, which I, as I do, that it has already gone beyond people's ability to understand. Mm. And like when you get people who are afraid to change the network, that's not because they have a complete view of what the network does and understand everything the network does and are just unsure of what's going to happen. It's because they don't have a good idea of what's going to happen because they don't have a complete view of the network. Mm. That and that's and that's a point that I've been I've been writing up writing a lot more white papers and and working through the thinking and the SDN problem hasn't is no longer about is is well it's not no longer it's as much about control of the network which is infinitely complex or inhumanly complex and what i mean by that is it's not possible for a human to understand SD-WAN and campus SD overlays and data center overlays without some sort of automated assistance because bringing that all together is just not going to be possible, especially when you've got an increasing diversity of devices. Like a, um, if you've got a, a VMware in your de- in your data center and you're running NSX, well, great, you've only got NSX and a physical network. Now put some Kubernetes on top of that and now put some Kubernetes with a service mesh on top of that. All of a sudden you've got a, a disproportionately complicated setup that you're expected to at least have some sort of functional concept of what's happening there. Well, and um, so I, this may sound familiar to you because I think I, I talked about this at one of the, the Packet Pusher events. But like, so imagine the, the following use case, right? You're running Kubernetes. You've got Docker instances which pop up and go away. You know, you've got some re- yeah, rig- sorry, you know, yeah, the temp- I haven't even mentioned the temporal. That yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you've got um, you know IP addresses that keep getting used and reused, and then somebody from the security team shows up and says. You know, this IP address three weeks ago is responsible for rooting the CEO's box. Like, tell me what what it was. 
<laughs> right. And you know, the answer is unless you have the logs and the computer processing, like if you have the, the programming capability to understand and dig through this, you're not going to find that with grep, no. right? Like you're, you're yeah. not going to like that. They're the, the traditional way of running networks is not going to solve that problem. Yeah. And, and by the way, you should have caught that when it happened, not, you know, three, three weeks later. Well, security but orchestration like, is the second part of the channel. So, yeah. Well, and I, I ultimately think that a lot of that is uh, a networking problem and that security, like the division between networking and security is, is ultimately artificial and a result of, you know, networking being more arcane than it should be. And you know, as things open up, as I was talking about, as you know, more data gets available, as you know, more things are driven by API, uh, I, I think the network will be more of a service to other people, like the security team, so they don't even have to come talk to you. They can you know, make the API call that says, "What was this IP address three weeks ago?" Yeah, and and also automated security, and that, I think we're heading into a point where security threat intelligence is going to make decisions, and then the network needs to respond without human intervention. And that already exists in some places as is right yes. now. Mm. There are some networks which are doing that to a lesser or greater extent or to smaller niche user, use cases. So where yeah. a high level of, of confidence can be applied, a script will run. But I'd, uh, yeah, I I'd still don't well, think and people... Even, and, and this is where I think things that gets interesting. This is where we're fairly off topic. But um, you know, even if it's a low-level confidence, but the action that's being applied is more subtle than block. Maybe it's degrade performance, or maybe it's route through, you know, reroute the traffic through a more uh, intensive uh, DPI machine to figure out what's really going on here, even though we continue to let the traffic flow. Or maybe we dump all the packets to a packet recorder. Mm. Like the, there's a bunch of things that are possible now, which are not just block versus allow, that make that a more interesting problem. Yeah. Are these things that we need to be thinking about today, or are these things that just should be, they're so far out in the future that it's just, Fine for Greg to talk about it on a podcast, um, but that's just all so far away and there's so much evolution in the market and enterprises are barely even moving to 10 gig Ethernet. The vast majority of companies don't have an SDN solution in the data center and hell, we started talking about this in 2011. Well, and I, that brings me to like a different concern, which is, to, to answer your question directly, I believe that there are some companies where that is absolutely a thing that they need to have right now. Now the question is: Are they investing in IT enough? Are they invest is as IT? Is there, are they seeing the returns on the investment in IT? Um, hmm. You know, that's a different question. Uh, and if you, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, let's assume that money is not an issue, <laughs> which it is, of course. But yeah, well, and you know, there's this separate issue of, in my mind, and obviously I'm biased given where I'm working now, but you know, most of the if you look at the salaries you can get for working for some of the large hyperscale companies versus a regular enterprise versus, you know, maybe a, a second or third tier, you know, bank or, or, you know, a mom and pop enterprise, you know, there's a night and day difference. And so the, there's this almost issue of, I call it, you know, perhaps unfortunately brain drain mm. that happens where some of the best people are going to some of the best places. And, you know, if you are, you know, a third tier bank, you know, that money is just as, valuable to its customers as it is at a first tier bank mm. but you know it, you can't believe that the IT is the same quality on I average. actually had this discussion yesterday in New York um, at the time of recording I'm just a couple of days out from doing the live event with Glueware which we promoted across the network and I was talking to two CIOs and they're like 
really big in brand names that you would instantly recognize. I won't name them because that might not be the thing to do. These people are been working inside of their networking teams for 10, 20, 30 years, and they're trying to automate the networks. And the, the, the biggest problem that they told me that they're having is A, finding a problem, a product that can do the automation, automation practically, and B, they cannot hire people to come in and automate their networks. They just can't, like they're trying to recruit people to take permanent jobs and there's just no way that they can find people who have the software skills or the thinking of skills around this to make that happen. So I, I can absolutely say from two of the biggest companies in the world that I've chatted to that that is absolutely true. And and if you're a smart network engineer, why would you be in networking? If you had enough skills to be doing some DevOps and being able to communicate effectively with software developers, you should move on, I think. Well, I wouldn't necessarily move on. I, I think you know if you look at how some of the larger companies run uh, their networks, they have very few non-programming network engineering roles, meaning that network, like everybody codes. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, you know, are you doing, you know, deep software development or are you writing some scripts to automate things so that you don't have to do it by hand? Uh, but, you know, in my mind, you know, to, to the people listening to this podcast, you need to learn how to start coding, right? Like if you have a hundred ports to enable across a hundred different switches, and you have to log into each switch individually and you know type switch port access enable you know for that um, like you're doing it wrong and you're you're wasting your employer's time and if you don't feel that you know your employer is encouraging you to learn or giving you the time to do this um, that that's that's fairly indicative in my mind uh, and the, you know here's the problem that I have with is that, that overly pragmatic or overly preachy I don't know what the no I, I think that the problem that I have with that is saying to people that you have to program is fine but the the mistake that people make is they move down the path of Python and Ansible which is exactly the same path that I moved down in the early 2000s with Perl and Tickle and TK and SNMP where we started out doing automation and writing Perl scripts and programming, you know, polling the CLI. And we got some really cool things that we had this great process of, and we got some really cool things done, easy wins in a few weeks. And then a few months later, the system got bigger and then we had a database and we were putting the, the configurations in a database. And then we started checking the configurations into a, um, a subversion instance so that we could do a diff and then we could show the diff in us, you know, and then all of a sudden the CLI on the device would change and we'd have to go back into a development huddle to redo that. Well, and so that is the critical thing of what an API is. As API is a contract for what will be and what won't be. And, you know, a CLI implicitly does not have that contract. But my point was, if you start to get to the point where you're doing some Ansible templates and some Python and you're configuring a, a router or a switch and then you start doing it for a firewall and then you do it for a different brand of firewall and then suddenly someone's saying to you, well, now you need to do it for a virtual firewall running in a VM. So your your instantiation process needs to be doing VMware as well as the firewall setup, as well as the configuration of the firewall along with all the other stuff. And all of that is in flux. All of that's changing. The APIs are flexing every six months. So at the other side of that, you're actually spending all your time maintaining code just to be able to keep the system in place. Like you're not moving forward, adding business value. You're just maintaining the automation platform itself. You're not, 
And then you start to build a CI/CD pipeline, you start to build a testing environment, and then it just becomes this endless suck of time and resources just sustaining the the, the code that you've written. Uh, and agreed, but so your assumption is that that is bad. And so I, I would actually, the thing that you just described actually would describe as most of my current day job. And the net result is the work that I have to put in is independent of the number of devices. Now, you, to your point, there's, every time there's a new type of device, that's, that's additional work. But the number of devices, it doesn't change. And I think that's the critical value there. So my point would be is that if you're going to, I think everybody needs to learn to code so that they can understand software and they can understand more about how, and they may well need to write controllers to do SDN federation. So if you've got a an ACI here and a Palo Alto here and a, a, an Aruba wireless over here, you are definitely going to have to write some code that will glue them together. But I think it's unlikely that you're going to write code that emulates what vendor SDN controllers will do because they do things that you will not be able to reasonably do for the money. Yes, yes. And, and that's where, uh, let me draw the, the distinction between what I would call software engineering versus kind of coding and scripting. And you know, software engineering is anybody can you know, build a little treehouse for you know, their kids in the backyard. Uh, very few people can build a bridge. <laughs> right and <laughs> I know where you're going with this. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, and so software engineering is building the bridge, right? It involves, you know, deep testing, you know, API design, uh, whatnot, um, you know, potentially millions of lines of code, revision control revision control. And like, there's a whole bunch of things that go along with that, which if you can learn those things like on your own, go for it. That's awesome. But then there's the I have to write a hundred line Python scripts and instead of have something that could take four days and I could probably screw up and like that might bite me two weeks from now. Yeah. Like I'm going to spend three hours working it, working on it now. And yeah. you know, I'll probably have to maintain it a bit over time. But like I said, you know, the, the, the magic of you write the software runs and then it works on whatever number of devices you have. That mm-hmm. is the thing that I think it has been missing out of networking. And that's you yes. know, people here talk about you know, scaling with net, the network. That, that is the, the magic. Yeah, I think I, I, I've come to the view that you are going to buy vendor SDN controllers, and, but you may be running Python, Ansible, hand-rolled scripts to, to do federation until such time as we have a federated solution. So you exactly. may write a script that whenever you provision something in the data center, the script reaches in, pulls out the information and goes off and runs it into a, a Prometheus or a Grafana. So your analytics picks it up. Or the the other angle there is, you know, you buy an off-the-shelf vendor uh, SDN controller that exposes some APIs that then you tie into your custo- your company's internal business logic. Right. So, yep. you know, uh, you know, if you have a new user, you know, in the, and in your internal policies that each user is on a new VLAN, um, then you, you know, when they click the I'm a new user button, in whatever your web portal is, that can turn around and somebody has to write the code that will turn around and call into the controller and say, allocate new VLAN. Hmm. Sudo, make me a VLAN. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and, and, and there'll be some policy language or there'll be some breakdown and you need to, there may be some, but you're not the bulk of the work or the heavy lifting or the scut work associated with product development will actually be handled by an SDN controller that your vendors offered you. Or some SDN, it might be open daylight. It might be a glueware, it might be like a, a, a non-vendor-specific SDN layer. 
Exactly. That, I that mean, has some really way what I think of, yeah. it comes down to is distributed systems. Like distributed systems is a branch of computer science, which is just hard. Like, you know, I, I have a PhD. I sometimes think I understand distributed systems. I've been working this in this for 25 years. Mm. And like trying to ask people who are mostly network engineers and know some programming to actually solve distributed systems problem, like that's that's where things can go awry. Yes. And that's really what a controller is, is solving, like turning a distributed systems problem and hiding that so that people can not have to worry about that. Yeah. So you would agree with that view that you may well write code, but it wouldn't be code that would directly configure the nodes in the network. It would be configuring the controllers that drive the nodes as a, as a broad, exactly. broad brush principle. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very good place to stop because I'm winning. <laughs> I don't know. Did you count that right? I, I demand a recount. <laughs> well, Rob, that's just fantastic. Thank you so much for giving me your time. I know we've had a long uh, road to get this together, but I think it's been a fascinating discussion, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to to put up with me. <laughs> as always, um, and, uh, I always love coming on the show. Uh, I, I always love chatting with you. It's a, who knows where the conversation will go. And now that we've got it recorded, I guess we do know. But yeah. uh, certainly, uh, I, I had fun. So thank you. No problems. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I actually don't have a great net presence these days. Uh, you mm-hmm. can follow me on Twitter uh, at C A P V E G Capveg, and that's probably it. But otherwise, you're you're busy busy having a new family. For which yeah, I'm busy having a new family yep. uh, and uh, getting some work done. Uh, yeah. I should probably create a blog or something. I, I hear it's fun. <laughs> uh, be careful what you say. You might end up like me, and that would not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank. I hope everybody agrees that this has been a fantastic discussion. And thanks again to Rob for joining us on today's show. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode in your favorite podcatcher, and you can find it on packetpushers.net, where you can discover over 1,000 other episodes from across our podcast network for networking and infrastructure professionals, along with our community blog and news feed. Follow our tweets on at Packet Pushers. You can see do the same thing on LinkedIn, where we sync out all our content, all our blog posts, all our podcast notifications go there. It can be a great place. And it would be hugely powerful and useful for us if you would tell everybody about us. Tell your friends, tell your kids, your family. They'd love to listen to us, I'm sure. But uh, even more important, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or whatever your podcatcher is so that we can find new members and followers and people who listen along so that it allows us to stay in business. And if you wanted to give us some financial support, perhaps you could become a premium member at our site, ignition.packetpushes.net, as we're pumping up the content engine to get you more conversations like this. And as always, last but never least, too much networking would never be enough.